think about what you want your days to look like. Because we, we shoot for these achievements and these titles so that we can make the Facebook post and say, so excited to formally announce that I've taken this position. And it's like, wow, that's a sweet title. And then it's gone. And now you face the reality of working that job every day for years, potentially, you know, and it's like, what, what is this weird trade-off we aspired to, to make this one post on Facebook? If you think about from a day-to-day level, how you want to spend your time, it really helps direct you on what path you want to follow or build for yourself. That's actually useful. You know, there are like so many ways to make money so many ways to make money. And I am not interested in almost all of them. What's up, you guys? My name is Nick Koshovsky, and welcome to episode 69 of That Remote Life Podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. I hope you guys are doing well and staying safe. I'm coming to you today, as you can see, from a slightly different place. I'm currently in the uh, lovely town of Brevoort uh, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, Uh, where I'm going to be hanging out uh, with some friends over the next week or so uh, over July 4th, just kind of soaking up some sun and uh, getting to hang out by the lake. But today on the podcast, I'm joined by Jay Klaus, the founder of Freelance School and Unreal Collective, and the host of the host of the newly released Creative Elements podcast. Now, I've known about Jay and his work uh, for quite a while now because both of us are from Ohio and we have some mutual friends. So I was really excited to finally sit down with Jay and talk with him about all the things that he's done. And uh, and I got the chance to do that a few weeks back. And in this interview, you will hear about how Jay got started in entrepreneurship, running a funded startup, and why after selling that business, he decided to step away from entrepreneurship and get a job. And afterwards, why he returned to entrepreneurship and how he approached it differently in order to not burn out and build his perfect lifestyle. Through Freelance School and Unreal Collective, Jay has helped creatives build businesses around their passions, and so we discussed how to create a great freelance business, if freelance is a sustainable business pursuit long-term, and how to manage all your creative pursuits without burning out. I think you guys are really going to dig this interview. I had a ton of fun talking with Jay and I actually took down a lot of notes while we're talking so make sure that you have something close by if you feel the need to jot down some notes but all right you guys without further ado let's dive into this interview with Jay Klaus all right well Jay welcome to the show man how are you doing I'm doing well I'm doing well you and I were just talking we're about to go for runs which is something I look forward to at the end of my day and yeah I couldn't be happier yeah it's funny that that is like you know you work from home. I work from home. Everyone's working from home at the moment that can. And it's like the run is the one thing keeping me from like not leaving my house for like four or five days. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I really come yeah. to look forward to it. We're at like day 80 something of quarantine here in my household, my girlfriend and I, and the only things I go outside for are running. We go for walks most days and that's been pretty much it for like almost three months. But yeah. you know, that's, that's the world we're living in now. So 
I think this is a good place to start since so many people are, are kind of like going through this at the moment. And you're actually not super far away from me. I'm in Cincinnati. You're in Columbus. So we're both super close to each other. Uh, and like I, I was telling you before we hit record, I was really looking forward to this. And I really want to do this interview in person when I went up to Columbus. And then COVID hit. And I was like, that's not going to happen. So what has it been like? what has this experience been like for you guys in Columbus? Like how has it affected your life or, you know, has it not affected your life much since you were kind of like already kind of remote friendly? I had been dating my girlfriend for more than a year uh, when we decided to move in together in February. And so we moved into this house in February, which is much bigger than either of our places were before that. I had to weasel my way out of a lease and get someone else to sign that lease so I could be uh, free and clear of it. We moved in here at the beginning of February and then we promptly got locked down, like literally canceled our housewarming party um, early days of like the US bracing themselves and people were giving us a ton of shit about it. They were like, oh, come on, this is lame. Like, it's not a big deal. And we were like, well, we have friends that travel a lot and we're not trying to add to this problem that we think is going to be a problem. Um, all of that credit goes to my girlfriend, Mallory, for being up on stuff. But the biggest change has just been, you know, very quickly moved in with my girlfriend and have experienced this whole thing with her. And I can't imagine not having her during this and not having this, even this office setup you're seeing, not having this during that time would have been such a bummer. Um, so I feel really, really fortunate in terms of my business. Nothing has changed whatsoever. It's actually gotten more busy for me, which is weird. Um, but I, I feel like I was actually in a season of life, you know, looking back, I would tell people all the time, like, I just want to go on a trip for like a week to give myself an excuse to not do coffee meetings for a week and get a lot of stuff done. And this has like given me that in spades. And it was a really great time to just like hunker down and create a lot of routine, create a lot of free content. And I feel like I've up-leveled my business a ton over the last two and a half, three months because of it. Yeah, it's crazy how I feel like, and this is something that like my fiance and I talk about is that like, this is affecting a lot of people in a negative way. I mean, obviously people are losing their lives and people are like losing family and like friends and all that kind of stuff. And people are like losing their jobs. But one of the interesting things is like, work has never been more busy for her. Work has never been more busy for myself. And it's like this thing that, you know, for the last like several years I've been talking about, get started with online work. Like there's so much opportunity there and all of a sudden it's really coming to reality. And, and people are really seeing that like there is a lot of work to be done. Um, and it, 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 there's so much opportunity, you know, in like an online business space. Yeah. I think at a society and especially local level, we haven't even begun to see how problematic this is all going to be. But in in a weird way, it's kind of catalyzing a lot of changes that people have been pushing for for a long time. It's going to be really hard to get people to come back to the office in the way that they were doing before, even management. You know, I'm hearing people that are in levels of, of management and, um, you know, C-suite talking about how it's so great to be home with their kids for lunch. And it's going to be so hard to convince them that going back to an office is necessary, let alone, you know, enjoyable so this is going to accelerate remote work in a weird way. We experienced universal basic income for a month, uh, which will push that conversation forward in Ohio, which has like crazy laws around uh, 
alcohol and liquor distribution. Like they're changing the legislation to maybe make alcohol delivery uh, possible again forever, like in a, in a new way. So it's just kind of crazy how much it's catalyzing, but it's also catalyzing a lot of bad things too. Like a lot of anger and hate is born out of fear. And this is a breeding ground for fear right now with so many people facing job insecurity, like almost 40 million people, I think now have filed for unemployment since mm -hmm. the lockdown. That's crazy. That's a lot of fear. That's a lot of hate and anger that's being created. Like we're in for some wild times, I think. And I don't think we've even seen the beginning of it. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Um, to kind of shift into, you know, sort of talking about business and like what we're here for. I do not a ton of, you know, uh, research for these sorts of interviews. I love to kind of like be surprised and, and be curious as guests come on, but I do like to do a little bit. And one of the really interesting things is that doing research on you, I was like, oh my goodness, you've done so much. You've like worn so many hats, uh, which is always exciting for me because I'm very similar. And have you ever, I'm curious, have you ever read like Tim Ferriss's four hour work week before? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, read that. Gosh, I don't know. Whenever it was a, a, really a thing in the zeitgeist, like probably 60 years ago or something. Right. So one of the things, one of my favorite phrases from that book is that when he would get asked, like his, his most favorite and most hated question that he ever received was, what do you do for a living? So he would answer it with, um, I sell drugs online, which is one of the greatest things ever. So I was curious, what is your favorite answer that you've ever given to that question? My favorite answer ever is not at all the answer I'm doing. Um, my favorite answer was after I quit my job and people ask, what do you do? And I said, I don't. Because there was a period of time where I just didn't know what I was going to do. There's about a month where I was like, okay, I quit my job and I'm not doing anything to make money right now. And so I'm not going to pretend that I am. <laughs> I just don't. Now I say that I help creatives become uh, confident business owners. And that's a much easier answer. Uh, it dovetails into pretty much all the things that I do. But yeah, it's, it's been difficult for me over time as well. But it's, it's a question that you need to get good at answering. And you might as well just kind of have a script of answering because you get asked it all the time, number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, it's a wonderful invitation to talk about the thing that you spend most of your time doing and pays the bills. Like if someone asked you, hey, how could I possibly give you money? wouldn't you want to answer that question and like have a good answer for that question? That'd be amazing. So that's basically what people asking, what do you do is, and you might as well, you know, come up with some answer that's useful. I'm curious when, when you give that answer to that question, what would people say? Cause that's so odd. Like most people are so used to like, you know, everybody's like, well, I'm an engineer or whatever. Like what kind of like, you know, responses did you get when you would say that answer? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm going for showing the outcome. And I want to put two things in that sentence. One, the outcome. Two, the type of person that I provide that outcome for. I don't like just answering it with an identity term, like I'm an engineer, because that um, it is, isn't useful for what you're trying to do with your business. For a while, and so I'll, let me answer your question. People will say, what do you mean? And then I'll go down whatever path I think is most useful. I'll say like, well, I'm mostly creating online education, uh, articles, email lists, podcasts, courses, things like that uh, to work with freelancers and creatives and creators. 
I can kind of go through the individual projects if they want to opt into that. I used to ask people as an introductory question, instead of what do you do, I would say, what are you like? Or like, you know, I'd say, Nico, what are you like? And people would have like this crazy abrasive reaction to it because they might say, well, I'm an engineer. And I would say, that's not what I asked. I asked, what are you like? They're like, what do I like? No, what are you like? <laughs> and I'd say, oh, I'd never thought about that. Ah, that's like existential. And I think like, well, you know, I like to, I like to write and I like to do this and that. And it's just a much more interesting conversation uh, as opposed to like, what institution or practice do you identify with? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did people respond to the, uh, the first time that you were giving that answer when you were like, when you had just quit your job and you were saying like, you know, not really anything like, were they like weirded out by that or? No, they would laugh and they would say like, well, what are you talking about? And we'd, we'd continue on. But I, there are a lot of times I'm an introvert. And so there are a lot of times when actually I enter conversations, trying to end conversations as quickly as possible. And like, there's no better way of ending a question than basically hitting them with a no, but instead of a yes. And so it's not something I did a lot, but it was fun because it kind of cleared the air of kind of like the expectancy of me posturing. It was just like, Mm. I know you want me to like, talk about myself and hold myself up but honestly i'm not interested in doing that i'm not doing anything right now and i don't want to talk about it gotcha so why did you you know going back to you kind of quitting your job why did you decide to do that well i worked at a software company called crosschecks they were in the healthcare space they had raised something like 50 million dollars to date i was running uh, several of their products at the time but before that, for the two years previous to my year at Crosschecks, I was running a software company of my own, based in Cincinnati, actually, and really enjoyed that because I was working remotely. My partner was in Cincinnati. I had pretty much full reign over my time. It was a miserable industry to be in, and so the experience itself was really tough, but we sold that company. It was like a modest outcome, really great way to start my career. Going to Crosschecks, it's like, okay, I, I have salary at the end of the day this doesn't all fall on my shoulders so it's like easier I actually have more time to myself because I can bound it to the hours of like eight to five or eight to six Um, but I just hated having a boss and the company was making a pivot away from prioritizing the products that I was managing and my role was going to change and I just had already been eyeing the exit I didn't want to learn something new for a month because my plan was to do it for 12 months and then leave. And at month 11, they were like, Hey, your job's going to change a lot. I just said, I'm, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) And so that's why I had about a month of figuring out what I was going to do because I quit before I thought I was going to. And it took me a little bit of time to get my feet underneath me and figure out what that meant for me. You know, I think a lot of people, have found themselves in that position where like they at least wish that they could take some time to figure out what to do next. And I think very few people have the opportunity to do so is to really take some time uh, and, and, and figure those things out. But what are some of the things that you did during that period to actually figure it out? Right. Cause the last thing that you want to end up doing is just a month watching Netflix. Right. And totally. not really figuring anything out. So was there anything like any kind of structure that you tried to use to make sure that at the end of that month or however long it was that you had kind of like figured out what your next step was going to be? 
I love this question because this is something when I quit my job, you know, is a company of a hundred plus people. And from that company and from my peers at other companies, when they saw me quit for months afterwards, they would talk to me about it because they were also in jobs that they wanted to leave potentially. And they all have that feeling of, I wish I had more time to figure this out. And it's like, you do. Most of the time you truly, truly do. Most of, I mean, if you're holding a job, like it's very unlikely you're going to be there for the rest of your career. Like you're probably going to leave. So you might as well spend some time really being thoughtful about what the heck you want in the next job. And if you are lucky enough to have a period of time that you can afford to explore, that's amazing and you should relish it because you're probably only gonna have a few of those in your career, especially when you're young, especially if you don't have a family or kids yet. So when people ask me that question, you know, I have them start from, think about what you want your days to look like. Because we, we shoot for these achievements and these titles so that we can make the Facebook post and say, so excited to formally announce that I've taken this position. And it's like, wow, that's a sweet title. And then it's gone. And now you face the reality of working that job every day for years, potentially, you know? And it's like, what, what is this weird trade-off we aspired to to make this one post on Facebook? If you think about from a day-to-day -day level how you want to spend your time, it really helps direct you on what path you want to follow or build for yourself that's actually useful. You know, there are like so many ways to make money, so many ways to make money. And I am not interested in almost all of them, you know? And it's important to understand what you want your day-to-day -to, -day to look like so you can start to weed out the stuff that you're just not willing to do. I could be making so much more money by having a job, especially in product management, and I'm just not interested in doing that because I want my days to look like a lot of agency and freedom over my time. I don't want meetings. I want to only work with who I want to work with. If I want to take the whole day off and write or edit a podcast, I want the freedom to do that. I don't want to be accountable to any bosses. I don't really want to be accountable to any employees. And so you really very quickly start to rule out a lot of ways that I could be making money if those are my constraints. So think about that uh, and project it forward. Like do the Debbie Millman five-year or at least three-year exercise of literally try to imagine a day in your life three years from now, write it out in gross detail, not gross as in disgusting, but like, <laughs> you know, in depth, write it out. What does your day look like? What time do you wake up? Where do you wake up? What is your house like? What are the first things you do in the morning? What do you do in the afternoon? What do your evenings look like? When you start to write these things out, you realize that you actually have elucidated a lot of these preferences in your mind already. You've already imagined this reality in a lot of ways. You just haven't made it explicit to yourself. And when you make it explicit to yourself, you start acting in accordance to that. And you start moving directionally towards that reality. And people just don't take the time to do that. And it's such a bummer because we only get one go at this whole life. And the quicker that I can be living the lifestyle that makes me happy every day, that makes it easy to get out of bed and makes it hard to go to sleep at night, you know, the happier I'll be. So yeah, that's the exercise I run people through. 
Yeah, I love that because like I speak to a lot of people and especially a lot of people listening uh, and in my audience are people who really love to travel. And I hear this phrase very often of, I really want to go travel so that I can like find myself. And to me, that's always a red flag because traveling isn't like you go to another country and you're going to immediately like find yourself, you know, like what are you going to do? that's going to help you and like aid you? Like what is the process you're going to go through to kind of decide we're going to do next? Um, so I love that kind of like framework. Wherever you go, there you are. You know, a lot of people think that if I get out of my physical environment, my problems will change. And usually it's deeper than that. And mm -hmm. so if you can create the time and space to think through this stuff now while you're at a job, while you're in the situation that you are, it's going to be a lot easier to make thoughtful, calculated decisions that have the outcome you want as opposed to just thinking, if I change my external reality, then I'll be happier. It's not that easy for really just about anybody. Right. So how did you, you know, kind of like the way that you define what you want your days to look like. Um, I think that that right there hit the nail on the head for a lot of people listening right now. Um, and it's what has attracted a lot of people, I think, to entrepreneurship. Is that kind of how you came to it? Or was there something else that really made you decide, I want to be an entrepreneur and I want to build businesses and help people build businesses? That's definitely why I'm there today. Uh, there's just not a lot of other options to fulfill the lifestyle that I want other than being my own boss and making my own reality, honestly. I got into it initially because in college, I found the entrepreneurship organization and I just didn't even realize that was an option. I grew up uh, in a small town and um, my parents were career teachers. My worldview was just pretty narrow. And I thought that, you know, I would get a job, I would work it for 30 years, retire and collect a pension or something. When I saw people my age making products, starting businesses that were making money and building their own reality, it just kind of broke my mind. And I had to rebuild from it. And it was a very positive experience, but that's what drew me to it in the first place. I was just like, Oh my gosh, I don't have to make this trade off of spending my time doing something I'm not excited about in order to make a living. I can do that on my own. And that initial luster wore off when you start actually doing the thing and realize it's really, really hard. And, um, went through that business, you know, like I said, it's called Tixers. We sold it. I was really burned out and I thought, you know, maybe, maybe entrepreneurship isn't for me. I'm pretty tired. I don't want to start a business for the sake of just starting something because candidly in that experience, I didn't enjoy most of my days. It sucked. I had freedom. Sure. Kind of, but I had a lot of accountability to our customers. We were in a high volume, low margin business where there was constant customer service, we were selling tickets, which is like this very finite store of value, like events passed. There is no value in that ticket that you paid $60 for. You got to sell it now. You got to find a way to liquidate that inventory, even if it's at a loss before the event is over. It sucked. And all events are nights and weekends. Like, when do I get to have fun? And so I, I kind of just wrapped that experience in with entrepreneurship as a whole, took a job, realize that, man, I don't like having a boss. And uh, yeah, I just didn't really have any other option. <laughs> Is that what then drove you to, because currently you kind of work in the freelancing space. You help people really build, you know, those sorts of businesses. 
is that what kind of made you go from the funded startup space to a more bootstrapped, you know, freelance world? Because like personally, like this is what I'm saying is like, I feel like we have had very similar journeys. Like I got started in that space as well here in Cincinnati and had kind of similar experiences. Um, so I'm kind of curious, like, is that what pushed you in that direction? Yeah. And when you're working at a startup that's well-funded, you really should look at the CEO and ask yourself, do I want his life? Do I want his days? And for me, the answer was, oh God, no. Like, I think that company was kind of a textbook example of how VC can be super flawed. Like they raised so much money through a series C when I was there, I got there after they raised the series C and we still didn't have anything close to product market fit. It's like, how do you raise that kind of money without a product market fit? And how must you feel as a CEO employing this many people constantly have to raise more money because you've blown through it. Um, that was the beginning of drive capitals first fund. And they're trying to prove this whole new model of investing in the Midwest and for them to raise a second fund, they have to show that the first fund was successful. But funds last seven to 10 years. So if you're raising your second fund three years after you raised the first fund, how do you say conclusively that the first fund was successful? You can't. What you can show are some kind of fake metrics that allude to growth, like more money raised at higher valuations for your companies, like headcount growing at these companies. So if you're an early investment, like Crosschecks was from Drive, you are incentivized to hire more people because Drive wants you to because that shows headcount. You're incentivized to run out of money so you can raise more money while people think you're on the upswing in value because that shows that the fund was successful. And at the end of the day, you have a business that just isn't working yet. Right. And so, you're just kind of like growing costs and not have yeah. a way to actually, you know, make money on those costs. Yeah. Costs and complexities. And like, I just don't really care about the arbitrary, like, I want a company that's worth this much. Like when I was doing the startup at Tixers, the first thing we did when I graduated and joined the company was do a detailed budget to say like, how much does it cost for Jake Klaus to live? And the answer was like $23,000 a year. It was dirt cheap. And it's like, all right, let's pay you 25. And so I learned to live really cheap. And so money just doesn't mean much to me. Like, what am I going to do with a million dollars? Like, that'd be really fun. It certainly opens up a lot of optionality. But generally, you know, I want to spend my time writing and doing whatever I want. It doesn't cost that much money to do that. So when I quit my job, I was in a comfortable enough position to just think like, I can certainly scrape together enough money to get by until I figure out what it is that I wanted to do. And I still didn't really know what that was. On kind of a whim, I thought I would start facilitating mastermind groups, groups of other entrepreneurs, because I had a good network. I realized that people didn't have the built-in network and support that I did. And it sure was valuable. I'd experienced it firsthand. So I started pulling that together and doing some freelance stuff just to pay the bills. But I didn't even realize at the time that it was freelancing. I was just like, oh, you'll pay me to do that? Yeah, I'll do it. Done. And it just became like a really great life. You know, I had a lot of time to myself, a lot of time and space to explore what I wanted to do. Those things improved. It got easier. I started making more money. And the clients that I was working with through Unreal Collective, this mastermind, or I call it accelerator program, I thought they would be startup founders. And more and more, it became apparent that they were creative professionals, service providers, people who are really, really talented, but just weren't 
as comfortable running a business as I was. And through that, you know, I just started seeing a lot of patterns, had the opportunity to create some courses for LinkedIn learning, took a lot of that work, used it as a basis to create my own courses. And now I've productized, okay, how to improve your freelance business. And now that I have something at the bottom of the funnel, two things, you know, a pretty low priced cost for courses and kind of a mid tier for coaching through the accelerator program. The game is just building a bigger top of the funnel. So now I spend as much time as I can creating free content as articles on freelancing school through my, my newsletter at jclaus.com. And now through this podcast that I started two months ago called creative elements. And that's the most successful thing that I've ever made. <laughs> so um, do you feel like you're now at a place where you're doing what you want to do and that you've kind of found like what you want to do for the rest of your life? Or do you still feel like you're kind of discovering and always innovating? Uh, from a how I spend my time? Yes. From the subject matter, I'm sure that will continue to evolve. I mean, I absolutely love that the people that I serve are talented, creative people who are building something out of compulsion. And like, I have to make this thing because I have to make this thing. I love that. That's like so much more interesting to me than like, how do I reverse engineer a business model to make money to do this thing? Like, I'm not all that interested in, I mean, honestly, a lot of the digital nomad businesses around like drop shipping and Amazon stores because it makes money. Like I get it. I love the hustle. It's not interesting to me. I want to work with people who are like building something out of passion. Um, and some people are, and that's, then that's great. But day to day, yeah, this is the, the life I want to live. Like, do I want to scale the number of people that I'm getting this content in front of? For sure. Do I want to go down different paths with that content someday? Maybe. You know, I always told myself that I wanted to make a living from writing books. I wanted kind of the, the Ryan Holiday novelist lifestyle. And it put me in this place of like, ah, when am I going to clear enough space to write a book? I want to be writing. Most of my time is spent writing. I'm writing all the time. There's no reason for me to be hung up on, is this bound in you know, the form of a book, this old high friction medium of reading and accessing knowledge? No, I'm doing that. Uh, so yeah, I, I've never been happier. I spend my days exactly how I want to spend them. And now it's just like solving the puzzle of, how do I make Google care more about the things that I'm writing? How do I like make this more shareable? I'm on a journey of just making everything that I'm doing higher quality and more useful. And that's awesome. Like what better way to spend your time? Do you feel like, I think there's a little bit of a discussion going on around freelancing and there's almost like two camps. There is one camp that feels that freelancing is this amazing thing that it's going to be in many ways, the future of work as uh, more people kind of like adopt this sort of like gig way of working um, and selling their skills. And then there's this other camp that is sort of like anti-freelance. Like they feel like it's not something that is long-term and that many freelancers either get jobs or they end up turning that freelancing into some sort of like uh, a business, uh, like mm -hmm. a service business with multiple people. What do you think about that? Is it something that's long-term? Um, is it something that like, anybody can do like anybody can anyone be a freelancer and a business owner i have a lot of thoughts on this 
One, I do agree that freelancing is typically a temporary state of employment. Um, it certainly is for me. I would prefer freelancing to holding a nine to five job, but it's still in service of creating something bigger and something that goes beyond me and creates sustaining uh, low input income. You could take freelancing a step further and build an agency and create some value there. But ultimately, if you're in client services, there's just not a ton of exponential value on top of the time that you and your team are putting in. It's hard to scale that and really get multiples on building a business that way. But I think freelancing is great. It's a great way to fulfill a lifestyle in the immediate term. I do think that it should be in service of a bigger long-term goal. I think where a lot of people get burned out on freelancing is because they they aren't even fulfilling their lifestyle the way that they want while they're doing it. And this comes in two ways. One, because you either, you either don't embrace being a business owner and you aren't willing to create the systems to make sure that you are financially okay and also sell clients and get projects that value you fairly. A lot of people will start on a marketplace like Upwork or Fiverr. And those things are great for the people they're great for. But if you're new to the game, it's really hard to get paid the value that you think you want, especially as an American and the wages that we expect. Because you're competing with people who will just do it cheaper. And usually employers that are going to marketplaces, price is one of their big considerations. Mm -hmm. And if you stop getting gigs or those gigs stop paying the way you want, what do you have? You don't have direct relationships with clients the way you would if you're going client direct in the first place. I think that you need to, if you're a freelancer, you need to embrace the fact that you can't scale. You need to build a respect for who you are and the work that you uniquely do so you can build demand for yourself. Because if you embrace the fact that you can't scale and you create demand, you're not going to increase supply of you. So the price is going to go up if people want you specifically. But that takes some hard work, marketing savvy, willingness to sell, ability to run a business. You know, it's kind of like the e-myth. Just because you can make great bread doesn't mean you should open a bakery. There's a lot more to running a bakery than making great bread. There's a lot more to being a freelancer than doing great creative work. And so if you're going to go down that path and you want that to serve a lifestyle, you need to embrace being a business owner. You need to, be, to embrace the fact that you can't scale and you need to build a business around yourself. What are some of the most important things like you would do if you were getting started with the freelancing business um, in order to put yourself in the position that you just explained? In client services, everything is built on relationships. So the first thing I would do is determine what is it that I'm selling, you know, and people don't buy a skill set, they buy outcomes and they buy solutions. So if you're sitting here saying I'm a copywriter, okay, that's a start. What is the outcome or solution you're selling to somebody through the means of copywriting? Are you going to help their uh, conversions increase through their email sequences? Are you going to lower their churn? You need to get to a point where you can map your skill set to an outcome that maps to more money in their pocket. And if you can do that and prove that and show case studies of that, you are going to be in demand. Once you have that, come up with kind of a short statement. Like I said, I help creatives become competent business owners. 
you help X do Y. Who is the X? What is the Y? When you can do that and say that, you need to start meeting with everyone you know who already likes and respects you and trusts you. We buy from people that we trust and people that we like. And so go to the people who already are that, talk to them, ask them how they're doing, learn what's going on in their world. Inevitably, they'll ask you, hey, what's, what's going on in your world? How are you? What are you doing? And you can say, I help X do Y. And they say, oh, great. Maybe they're X. Maybe they need Y. Maybe they hire you. But at least you've started to socialize who you help and how you help them so that over time, you have enough of those conversations. Those people are going out into the world. They're talking to people every day. And when, when people talk, they talk about their problems. If someone says, I need this outcome, I need this Y, or someone says, I'm this X, I'm doing this X thing right now, your advocates, these people who like and trust you, are going to say, you should talk to Jay. He can help you with that. And that's how you generate proactively this word of mouth that client-based services run on. And as a freelancer, you don't need that many clients to have like a really good, comfortable life. So it's really about building those relationships, knowing who you serve, how you serve them, and then be as efficient as possible in terms of when you work with a client, try to get as much from that relationship as you can. And I don't mean in just in terms of like more money. I mean, make them have such a great experience that they want to refer people to you. I mean, make them have such a great experience that they give you a testimonial because they can't help but, or at least request it. Put, it, put their testimonial and their experience into a case study. If you're just getting started and you claw your way into your first three clients, maybe two of them you know, are your parents, friends, and one of them you did for free. If you can turn all three of those projects into case studies and you can show three beautiful case studies with very real business outcomes, people are gonna be able to look at what you've done and they're gonna think that you've worked with 10 people and you're just deciding to throw, show three case studies. But in reality, you've just been really efficient with the work that you've done so far. So you can you know, get started and compress the timelines of building demand around yourself if you're creating these assets around your work as you're doing it. But in the beginning, you know, it's tough. You gotta get out there and you gotta work hard and you might have to work under the rates that you really want to because ultimately we need social proof, we need to like and trust you, and to trust you, we need to see results. You're gonna have the chicken and the egg problem if you can't do the work for yourself and show that. Do it for somebody that you like and trust, preferably someone that is also well plugged in so that they can tell their friends who need the same outcome that you help them and build from there. I'm so glad that you mentioned word of mouth and referrals because I don't think we hear enough about it. I think, and I tell this to people all the time that I talk to is like, hey, you might be seeing tons of YouTube videos about how to do SEO and how to run really cool Facebook ads, but a lot of service businesses are referral-based and it's word of mouth. And like when you kind of get into it, you, you find that that's just the case, you know, it's like you, somebody that you worked for tells someone else. And, you know, when you do it long enough, it almost kind of happens naturally. Uh, and so I'm really glad yeah. that you mentioned that. Well, I mean, it's just the reality of client services. Any, anything that you're selling, you have a sales funnel. At the top, people need to be aware that you exist. Then they need to have some level of interest that, of, in working with you. They need to make the decision that, yes, affirmative, I'm going to work with Jay. 
And ultimately, they need to still like pay you to do it. If you can skip past making people aware and making people interested, you start to have higher conversion rates, you have fewer conversations, it's just more worth your time. And getting word of mouth referrals skips those first two parts. People who already know and trust you are doing those first two parts of the sales funnel for you. Do you feel like anyone can be an entrepreneur or a freelancer in the way that you describe? Or do you think that it's something that you're almost like, like born with? Like it's like a type of like a personality thing. I don't think there's much of anything that is innate, but I can say after working with a lot of people, you really have to cultivate within yourself the desire to be a business owner if you're going to be successful in doing it. And I am no longer interested in trying to convince people that they should be business owners because I just think it's a losing battle. It's so hard that if you don't come into it obsessed with making that work, you're not going to get through the challenges that come with it. So I do think you have to enter into it with a mindset of, I want to do this. I'm going to do this for you to be successful. But I don't think that's something you're born with. I think that's something that you can learn and, and come to embrace. I think a lot of people who are entrepreneurial, quote unquote, um, I'm guessing a lot of the people that you work with, definitely a lot of the people who listen to this podcast that I've heard from are the sort of people who love lots of different things. They want to mm. do lots of different things. They have lots of interests. They want to work on lots of different projects. And I mean, you yourself, you're a speaker, you're an entrepreneur, you're a writer, you're a podcast host, you have two podcasts, uh, which as somebody who runs one podcast, I know how difficult that is. So bravo for running two. And you're also now a movie producer. I saw that you put together a movie. Oh, that's true. So, that was an accident. <laughs> okay. First of all, I definitely want to hear about how that happened afterwards, but how do you, how are you able to manage all of those different things? Because I think that's something that a lot of people like find really difficult. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not something I recommend personally. I think the most impactful thing you can do to grow your business is to do fewer things. And I do too many things. And even still, I will not commit to a new project unless I can make a very strong case as to why that is making my directional path shorter. But anything you do is at the cost of the other things that you do. So to do all those things, you have to be so good at manage, managing not just your time, but your energy. Like I publish a lot of stuff now, two podcasts a week, two regular newsletters a week. I'm putting more effort into Twitter and Instagram than I ever had before and LinkedIn. And really, I can only create the content for those things in the morning. Can't do it at night. Brain's not there. Just can't do it. So not only do I have to manage my time, I have to understand like when I can be most effective doing certain things. I also find that I have this very strong muscle for predicting how much time it's going to take me to do a certain task. And just being really good at estimating my own capacity and limits. I create deadlines for myself constantly. I hit those deadlines almost without fail. And I do that all the time. Um, yeah, I mean, 
And there's no way for me to teach people how to do that other than just like a ton of practice. When I, when I first went to college, I thought I was going to be a journalist. And so I took all these journalism classes and deadlines come from journalism a lot of the time, because literally if I'm printing a daily newspaper and it goes to print at midnight so that it can be delivered at 6 a.m. the next morning, you have to have your stories in early enough for the editor to read them, to make it sure it fits in layout on the newspaper. And if you don't do that, it can't be printed. And all the work that you did goes to waste. Your editor is pissed because now they don't know how to lay out the, the sheet. It was just a bad, bad time. And so when you go through a journalism training, you just build such a respect for deadlines. And it blows my mind every day that people don't respect deadlines. They don't follow through. They can't. <laughs> it's just, it blows my mind that people aren't more reliable. And that really stands out um, in terms of creating content. Like if you can reliably show up when your audience expects you to show up and do that over enough time, you build trust and you really stand out from other people. But you just have to really get a lot of practice at it. And it starts with setting your own deadlines and honoring them because it's insidious, it's subconscious. If you show yourself that you don't respect your own deadlines, you'll never hit them. It's like the, the block on my calendar at 6.30 that says go to the gym. When I miss that the first time, I no longer really even see that block. It's not something I take seriously. And you have to destroy it and start over again so you can create a new cycle of, this is a promise I'm making to myself. And you need to fulfill that so you can trust yourself and then you can really start to push your boundaries and do more projects because you know, okay, I trust myself. If I'm committing to this, I'm going to do it because that's what I do. You have to create this identity with yourself of, if I say I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. And that's really the only way to have a high level of output. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. And I think being in this sort of like self-employed world, there are so many people, myself included sometimes, to be honest, that have said like, hey, I'll deliver this by Friday and it doesn't happen. But when you see it on the other side, you just, you see how much, how impactful that is. And you see how few people really can deliver what they say they're going to deliver by when. And it makes you like that much more like, like you get pushed that much more to, to do that. And I, I'm totally with you on this is that like, if you can do that, you're going to just stand above everyone else. Um, I did want to ask you though about something because I think we're touching on a topic here that's really interesting because it's just so relevant. So many people who are in this world, they want to do multiple things. And I noticed actually that we have another mutual friend, not just uh, Ian Horton, that's Matt Giovinisi. Uh, and when Matt was on my podcast, he said something that really struck me because I think a lot of people logically know not to do multiple projects that if they focus on just one, they know that's going to do better, but it's just, they can't help themselves to start multiple things. And one thing that Matt said to me was that even though for him, Swin University is the thing that makes him the most money and the thing that he's been doing the longest, he doesn't believe that he would have been able to do it for all this 10, 13 years that he's been doing it if he hadn't given himself the opportunity to work on other projects from time to time. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, if you, are, if you are someone that's prone to shiny object syndrome, you're gonna have to learn to cope with that some way. 
And that's either by finding safe ways to indulge that or to, you know, work yourself out of that tendency. And I think finding safe, non-destructive, dare I say even productive ways of coping with something that could be a limiting trait is really powerful. Um, in Matt's case, you know, it's allowing himself to indulge some of these things into in these like short time bounded windows for the most part. You know, it's, it's kind of an agreement that, okay, I will do this and I will continue to deliver on this. That's a given if I can also do this. And as long as you continue to fulfill your expectations on the main thing that you need to, sure, you know, go outside of that. For me, it's always been, it's less about shiny objects. I actually don't have a lot of shiny objects and more about opportunity. I, when I try new things, it's because I see that there is high upside potential and low downside risk. And most of the time it's because I can time bound it or because, you know, let's take a concrete example. A couple months ago, I got invited to do a beta program with LinkedIn, which is their newsletters product. It's not publicly available yet, but they said, do you want to do this? And I said, another weekly newsletter, can I commit to doing that? And ultimately I decided, yes, I will do that. One, because it's a new audience. Um, and I didn't feel as if, if six months in, it wasn't going well. I figured I can wind that down and not feel that bad about it because ultimately it's through someone else's platform and it's not as bad of a reflection on me but I am going to run that experiment weekly for six months. But I said, yes, because it's a huge platform. And when I looked around at other people using that product, because they had the advantage of getting in early, the numbers for total subscribers in organic growth just look crazy. And I can tell you that three months in, that newsletter adds hundreds of organic subscribers every week, and I do nothing other than publish. I don't know why that is, and I can't tie a ton of business results yet, but now, you know, that newsletter is sitting at, sitting at about 7,300 subscribers. When I push publish on Wednesdays and in the hours following, I get spikes in subscribers in my regular newsletter. Mm -hmm. I get spikes in followers on Twitter because I have call to actions in there, calls to action in there to do that. And so it works. And so I'm going to keep doing that because it's serving the ultimate goal of, creating a larger audience, building the top of the funnel, uh, getting towards a more sustainable and comfortable living from products. But again, if that didn't work, I would wind it down. Right. Sort of in, um, in wrapping up, one of the things that I've been really impressed with you kind of doing the research is that it seems like you have a pretty amazing network. And as we talk about, you know, networks are so crucial for people who are, you know, freelancers or people who are just starting whatever business it is. Having a great network is going to be helpful no matter what. What are some of the ways that you've been able to build a great network? And what are some of the tips that you would give people um, in order to kind of like help them build a, build a really great supportive network? I think I can boil it down to two things. The first is having a genuine interest in other people and tightly coupled with that is very high respect for their time. It's really easy for me to get 30 minutes with somebody, 
because it's clear that I'm genuinely interested and I have a specific reason for talking to them that isn't going to ask much of them. And two, I understand how valuable their time is and I'm not going to waste it. The last thing I ever want is for someone to have an experience with me or take a recommendation from me and say, I wish I didn't do that. So I take very, very seriously everybody's time or everything that I create that I recommend. I agonized today. I sent an extra newsletter to my list today, which I never do. I never go outside of Sundays because that's not the expectation that I sent. And I'm trying to break out of that a little bit because I know my business model is content and it's products. And if I don't give myself the opportunity to serve people and sell products through those means, what am I doing? But I agonized over that today because I knew that some people are going to open that and the product wasn't for them and I couldn't segment them out of it. And they would say, this is not useful for my time. I hate that. Hurts me. Hurts me so much. Even though, you know, I'm going to have a total of like eight people unsubscribe from a list of thousands. It hurts me that those eight people are going to unsubscribe because they had a bad experience. And, you know, countless others who didn't ultimately unsubscribe, but looked at it and said, ah, strike one, Jay, or maybe even strike two, Jay, you know, next time you waste my time like this, I'm gone. But people are very receptive to sharing their time if they know that you value it and that you're going to honor it and that they're going to leave that at least comfortable with the decision of giving it to you. Mm. Well, Jay, I got to say thank you so much for coming by. This has been awesome. I really appreciate your time and kind of all the information and help that you've been given, but that you've given us. But I can't really wrap up without asking about the movie we touched on it and i feel like it'd be a real you know dangling something in front of the audience if we didn't talk a little bit about the movie um can you give us a quick synopsis and kind of like how did that movie come together and then also um where can people find out more about you and what are some of the you know products and stuff like that, that people can check out um if you know everything that you said has appealed to them yeah well thanks for having me um excited to be here with you and, and meeting your audience here the movie came out of a total side project, not really aligned at all to the majority of what I do. It's called Upside. It's about entrepreneurship outside of Silicon Valley, uh, predominantly in America. We've, we've had a couple international companies, but mostly startup entrepreneurs outside of Silicon Valley. We had talked for a long time that we wanted to have a very in-depth piece about different ecosystems. You know, we talked to an investor or a founder from Kansas City and we get one perspective, but we wish we could marry those things together and have a holistic look at what's going on in Kansas City. But it was really hard to imagine doing that as a piece of audio because it would just be so hard to keep track of the voices. And neither Eric or I had the skills or equipment to do video, so we tabled it. But we had the opportunity to work with an intern last summer through Ohio State, and he was a film filmmaker, aspiring filmmaker. So we thought, awesome, this is an intern that we have funding to work with. We're going to put him to work creating like a 20 to 30 minute prototype of what a ecosystem specific documentary might look like. And I started shooting off emails to people here in Columbus because I live here and I think it's a really unique city nationally as far as uh, startups and entrepreneurship go. And everyone said, yes, they're like, yeah, I'll do an interview. And so we filmed it. The audio was great. The film was great. We didn't waste any audio or video. Like none of it was bad and we interviewed 26 people and it's just like man we put all this work into it like my whole summer was dedicated to this film and I thought it'd be really cool 
to cut this together and do a, a, a screening here in Columbus as like kind of a thank you and, and to show people what we made. And so he went to the theater and he said, yeah, we can do a screening because it's a local Columbus theater. They show a lot of local films and it's something that they like to do. But he said, if you have any aspirations for film festivals, you need to submit to film festivals first because they won't consider films that have been theatrically aired already. And we're like, oh, mm. we didn't thought about that at all, but I guess why not explore that? And he said, oh, by the way, in about four weeks, we're going to have a film festival here in Columbus at the Gateway, which is the theater we were going to. And he said, if you can get me a clip of the movie uh, tomorrow, I might've said in the next two days, and he said by Thursday, and it was like a Monday or Tuesday. So if you can give me a, cl a 45 minute clip of the movie, I'll put it into our judging consideration, even though it's just closed and we might be able to let you in. So we like hustled to cut together a 45 minute clip that was representative of a film that didn't quite exist yet. We got accepted. So we worked our asses off to like fully pull together a 90 minute film all in about the startup ecosystem of Columbus, Ohio. It's called Test City USA. If you want to watch it, it's at upside.fm slash film. Half the proceeds go to supporting uh, COVID-19 relief here in Columbus, Ohio, restaurants and families. But yeah, awesome experience. Did not think I was going to come out of it with a full film that I'm like really proud of. It looks great. Um, we won a couple of awards with it. Uh, we went into two film festivals and might get into a third. We'll see. But yeah, weird experience that I wasn't foreseeing. But again, that was like very time bound. That was just last summer. And mm -hmm. most of the work, I mean, I set, up, I set up the interviews. We set up the shots. I did the interviewing. I helped, you know, produce it, but the filming itself, the editing at the end of the day, that was all uh, Kyle Skinner, our director. I love the, the uh, production and launch of this movie about startups was very startup-y in that it was kind of like, you know, the MVP was kind of embarrassing, you know, like hustling oh, yeah. at the last minute. I love that. That's, that's classic, like, taking what your movie's about and kind of yeah. using the same thing. I love yeah. that. Well, Jay, again, thank you so much. I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you for coming by. I really appreciate it. Um, again, tell people, you know, where can they find you? Um, where can they check out some of your products and uh, some of the other things that you have going on? Anything I've talked about today, you can find at jklaus.com. That'll launch you into freelancing school or Unreal Collective or Upside. Um, would like to give a shout out to my new podcast, Creative Elements where every week I interview creators like Matt Giovannisi, who have made a living from their art and creativity. Um, really proud of that show. It's what I've gotten the best feedback on of anything I've ever made. So that's Creative Elements. I'm on Twitter at jklaus. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. We'll have all of them in the show notes. And um, thank you guys for listening. And Jay, thanks for stopping by. Yeah.